Welcome to the Madrigos Midwest podcast, Mental Health Matters, where we discuss mental health matters because we know that mental health matters. Good evening and welcome. Thank you for joining us for the third session of our four-part Keeping Safe Parenting series. My name is Shira Berkowitz, and I'm the Director of School-Based Programs and a Team Therapist at Madragos Midwest. This series is a three-way partnership between Madragos Midwest, a Chicago organization focused on the well-being and mental health of teens and young adults, a Chicago Sorry, NEFA Chicago is a professional organization and venue for Orthodox mental health professionals who serve our community. While the Associated Talmud is the central agency for Jewish day schools of Chicago, working to build stronger schools and healthy families. Madrigos Midwest thanks Nefesh and ATT for coming together to plan and sponsor the series with us to accomplish our goal of providing families with insights and skills to build safety and resiliency. Tonight's program is titled, Keeping Ourselves and Our Children Safe, Substance Abuse in the Orthodox Community. And our presenters are Leanne and ETL Foreman. The Foremans are the proud parents of five children, including their daughter, Alana, currently in recovery from addiction. Leanne, a corporate and employment lawyer by training, is the Executive Director of Communities Confronting Substance Abuse, or CCSA. ETL serves as the Executive Vice President and General Counsel of Duff & Phelps, a global financial advisory firm. Through their family struggles, they founded CCSA to create greater community awareness and education about substance abuse and addiction in the Jewish community. CCSA is dedicated to fostering greater communal support and understanding of these issues through various initiatives, including community events, enhancing resources for sufferers and their families, and facilitating evidence-based educational programming for students and parents. Feel free to post questions on the chat box to the group or to me personally, and we will address them after the presentation. Without further ado, I'd like to invite Leanne and Atiyah to the screen. Hi, good evening, everyone. Uh, and thank you to the organizers of this webinar for having us. Um, we're, we're delighted to be here. Uh, I'd like to start off tonight by sharing um, a little bit of our journey with you, because um, so I do think it's, it's instructive. Um, and for us, our journey uh, into the world of substance misuse and addiction began in August of 2008. Uh, it was the end of uh, a long summer, and um, Leanne and I decided to take advantage of a quiet evening and go out for dinner. Um, when we came back, uh, we found our then 13-year-old daughter, um, drunk. Uh, she was just a few days away from starting high school. Um, those of you with children of that age know how anxiety-provoking um, that, that time can be. Um, and the way she tells it, she was very nervous. She was very anxious. She didn't know, you know how she was going to fit in. And um, she had seen on you know, various movies and TV shows that the way that people relax when they're anxious is they take a drink. Um, 
we didn't have a lot of alcohol in the house, but there certainly was, there was wine. There was a, a bottle of something that I had gotten as a, as a holiday gift from, from someone uh, at work. And she found it um, and she poured herself a nice tall glass um, and got herself good and drunk. Um, we, you know, didn't quite know um, what to do, um, but, you know, we decided it would be a good idea to, um, you know, address this issue. We took her to therapists. Um, tried to get to the root of the issue. And honestly, we kind of chalked it up to experimentation on the part of a preteen um, who was feeling very anxious. Uh, as Ilana progressed throughout high school, there certainly was some experimentation with marijuana and alcohol. Um, and these are things we found out after the fact. Um, we certainly did notice that she was hanging out with certain friends um, that we kind of looked at and said, gee, these aren't the types of friends we're used to her having. Um, but again, she always pitched herself as someone who uh, wanted to befriend the underdog, people who, who didn't make friends. And, you know, she had answers and explanations for everything. Um, but she was certainly uh, with those friends uh, progressing um, and, and experimenting with alcohol and marijuana. What we didn't realize is that through that experimentation, her brain chemistry was already changing and she was getting drawn into the, the insidious disease of addiction. Um, she got through high school just fine. In fact, she thrived in high school. She was an honor student. Uh, she was the captain of the school soccer team. She founded the school's chess team. Um, she was by all accounts, a model student, no behavior issues, nothing like that. Um, and so we kind of figured, okay, she'll straighten herself out. Um, uh, and, and, you know, we honestly didn't think much of it. Um, she went off to college and there, uh, certainly she was exposed to a, a much larger variety of substances and particularly more harmful and dangerous substances, which began to negatively impact her life. And a real turning point for us came, um, on, uh, on Ilana's birthday. Um, Leanne and I, I guess there's a lot about going out to eat in this story. Um, Leanne and I uh, took Ilana out to uh, one of her favorite restaurants for, for dinner for her birthday. Um, she met us there. Um, and at the birthday dinner, she confided with us and said, Ima Abba, um, I have a problem with drugs. Um, it was a bit of an out-of-body experience for us. Uh, this was not the kind of thing that we ever thought would happen to us. This is not something we thought could happen to us. Um, there was nothing in, uh, in, in Ilana's history that suggested that she would be a candidate um, for being susceptible to addiction and substance abuse. We didn't know about that disease at the time. Um, we thought it only, you know, afflicted people. Um, well, we didn't know what, we, we didn't know. We just didn't know. Um, and we, we, we kind of, through the, the haze of trying to deal with this situation, professed our support for her. We said, we'll get you help. Um, you know, let's try and address this. And she quickly retrenched within, within a day and said, no, 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 I got this. I'll figure this out. Well, she couldn't figure it out. And over the course of the next couple of months, um, basically stopped going to classes, um, was, was, you know, failing out of school, this one-time honor student who until, you know, through her first year and a half of, of college had pretty much a 4.0 GPA, um, started failing out of her classes, not showing up. Um, and we it finally got to the point where we had to uh, say to Ilana, we can no longer 
pay for your apartment. We can no longer pay your tuition. We can no longer support you continuing in school um, because you're not making healthy decisions. Um, it was a, a very challenging situation uh, as a parent. Um, and thank God, um, to Ilana's credit, she stepped up and she said, no, I, I need help. Um, I need you to help me. I need to do something about this. And so uh, we set out trying to find um, a place for her to go to start dealing with her addiction. Um, we found a therapist on a, uh, got her an appointment on a Friday afternoon uh, to do an intake and kind of get a sense as to the places she, that might be right for her. And we basically told her, we said, look, just wherever they tell you to go, go and let us know this has to come from you. Um, that Motse Shabbos, um, uh, actually, I'm sorry. Yeah, it was actually that, that Friday afternoon, Leanne had, had just was about to light candles and, and she called and said, well, they're giving me you know, two possibilities. One is a place in Pennsylvania, one's a place in Florida. We said, all right, well, whatever they think makes the most sense, um, just go, you need to go. Um, and then we got a call Motsi Shabbos from her on the tarmac, on the plane, on her way to Florida. Um, rehab for Ilana was not a straight line. In fact, rehab for most people who suffer from addiction is, is not a, state, a straight line. Um, there were lots of ups and downs. And, and in particular, one story stands out from, from her time um, going in and out of rehab. And that is... Um, in one rehab center, she and a friend that she had met there uh, decided to leave the facility. This friend convinced her, convinced Ivana to leave the facility against medical advice. Um, and they did. And for three days, um, they disappeared. We didn't know where they were. We didn't know where Ilana was. Um, she wasn't answering her phone. Turns out she had lost her phone. Um, we couldn't get in touch with her. We had no idea whether the next call was gonna come from the police, the morgue, um, or her. Uh, and the only way we knew she was alive after those three days was that we got a call from another rehab facility checking our insurance coverage because she wanted to check herself in there. Um, but thank God, um, due to Ilana's real strength of, of character and, and real commitment to her recovery, um, she got herself on track. Um, throughout this whole process, Leanne and I felt very alone and isolated. Um, there was no one for us to discuss this issue with. Um, we'd never heard anyone speak about this issue in our community. Um, in fact, um, there was one Sunday morning we were in, again, I guess food. Um, we were in a Dunkin' Donuts, you know, kosher Dunkin' Donuts locally. And you know, our rabbi, our shul rabbi happened to be online in front of us and he knew what was going on. And he asked us, he said, you know, what's going on with Ilana? And we said, Leanne, you know, we're prone to sarcasm every once in a while. And Leanne turned to him and said, Rabbi, if you only knew, we must be the only people in all of Teaneck, New Jersey that are going through this issue. And he kind of laughed and said, if you only knew. Um, and that's really what triggered in our minds that there was something going on here that was causing people like us su suffering through this with a loved one um, to be alone and isolated. And that really laid the seeds of, of, of CCSA, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but what we had to do is really reorient our view and stereotype to what an addict was. I mean, in our minds, an addict was somebody who lived under the overpass with a needle sticking out of their arms. Um, we didn't realize, and we now know, it's a disease. It's a disease of the brain. Um, it's a disease like any other mental illness. Nobody wakes up in the morning uh, thinking, yeah, I want to be an addict. Um, it's not a, a, a moral you know, failing. It's not a, a decision. It's a disease. And it's a disease that does not discriminate. 
Um, it doesn't discriminate on the basis of, of age, doesn't discriminate on the basis of socioeconomic um, status, doesn't discriminate on the basis of religion. Um, it's a disease that, that impacts so many people. Um, and so, you know, with that, I'm going to turn over to Leanne to talk a little bit more about how this disease really impacted our family. Because the other thing we learned was that addiction really is a family disease. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's something that was made clear to us from the beginning. Um, when Ilana went into treatment, we were kind of left spinning our wheels, as ETL said. Um, we looked around for resources. We looked around for support. And yes, I was sarcastic with my rabbi. And I did say, you'd think that we were the only people in the world that, you know, in the neighborhood that suffer from this. Um, and we went to some groups like Naranon, which is Narcotics Anonymous, the, the family version of it. Um, we tried to find resources on addiction. What, what should the family do? We had no precedent for this whatsoever. Um, when Ilana admitted she was having issues, but before she went into treatment, we had that gap of a couple of months where we were telling her that we weren't gonna support her unhealthy decisions any longer. We couldn't financially support her staying in school. Um, her tuition was gonna end at the end of the semester. Her lease was gonna end at the end of the semester. And we were terrified. We were, we were hoping to force her hand that she would go into treatment, but obviously the alternative could have happened and she could have ended up on the streets or worse. So it was a really harrowing time, probably as harrowing as the three days that she disappeared on the streets of Florida between treatment centers. Um, but we had to tell my parents, ETL's parents, and we had to tell her siblings. She's one of five kids. She has three younger siblings. And when we told her we could no, no longer financially support her, we realized the little that we knew about addiction, she could try to get money from someone else. Um, and we, we didn't want to keep it a secret anyway from our family, but we really weren't sure how to broach the subject. We ended up calling, you know, each set of grandparents and saying, look, Ilana might call you. She might make up some heart-wrenching story why she needs money. It never happened, by the way, but, you know, we were preparing them. Um, we told them what was going on. We told them that she hoped, you know, we hope she's getting help. Um, we're trying to get her to get help, but it's unfortunately not something that's in our control. And then we had to talk to our kids individually and tell them what was going on. And again, we're just learning what this disease is. We're just trying to reframe in our minds what our stereotype was all along all those years. And now we have to go and explain this to our kids. Um, what was very striking, and this sort of came out over time after Ilana went into treatment, um, when she was in rehab, then she was in sober living. And, and currently now she's actually three years in recovery. Um, so it's been a long journey, but in that rehab time, um, my kids really felt like they had no one to talk to. And, and for the same reason that I made my sarcastic, sarcastic comment to my rabbi, I'm sure they felt the same way, that they felt isolated, that nobody really talks about this. Happened to be that my um, second oldest daughter went on a summer program that year in Israel. Um, God willing, the summer programs will be back again this year, but um, she went on a summer program and she felt overwhelmed. I think at that time, Ilana was in treatment. Um, and she felt very overwhelmed by the situation and she was upset. And one of her advisors pulled her aside and said, you know, what's going on? And she wasn't sure she could talk about it. And then she decided, you know what, I can probably say something. Um, my parents are pretty, pretty open about this. And it turns out the advisor's brother had just overdosed a month before and alive, survived, but um, it was very, very hard on that advisor's family. And here's somebody a few years older, also not talking about it, not sharing it. And the two of them shared their experience 
Um, but it just went to reinforce exactly what we felt all along that everybody's sort of suffering alone and not talking about it and ashamed. And, and the disease of addiction, unfortunately, is very stigmatized. I think most mental health conditions have some stigma associated with them, but I think, I think addiction to substances is even more shameful. Um, and that's something that we're working to try to eliminate because there are a lot of people out there, and this will come out as we tell more of our story, there are a lot of people out there who have come forward over the years, um, and not just about their children, about their spouses, about their parents, siblings, um, some tragic stories, some, some good stories that people are in recovery, but it affects many, many people. And what we always say is you never know if it's going to affect someone in your family or yourself. And that's why we all need to be aware of the ramifications of this. So I want to pick up on something Leanne said and talk about stigma a little bit. We, we throw that word around um, a fair amount. Um, and there are three questions I want to pose about stigma. Number one, why does stigma matter? Number two, why is there stigma or a we believe a disproportionate amount of stigma in the Jewish community around issues like substance misuse and addiction? And then three, what can we do about it? Um, so in terms of addressing why stigma matters, I wanna talk to you about a study I came across uh, that took, took place in 2018, research conducted by Dr. Marco Veniro. Uh, and he was studying rats um, and what he did was he gave rats an option between pulling a lever, one lever that would release to them drugs, particularly opioids or amphetamines, uh, and the second lever, which would open a door that would allow them to socialize with another rat, okay? What he found remarkably was that over 90% of the time, the rat would choose the door, the, the lever that would open the door to socialize with the other rat, even if they were already addicted to the drugs and would suffer withdrawal as a result of not getting additional amphetamines or opioids. So what this showed us uh, very clearly is that socialization, being part of a social community is something which is so valuable um, as to be able to impact at least rats decisions and all the more so us thinking humans. Um, around drug use. It, it demonstrates to us that substance misuse and addiction um, is something which creates isolation on the part of the sufferers. And if we can create appropriate socialization, we can hopefully lead to better outcomes. It also teaches us, in, in, in my opinion, um, that if we proactively provide the type of inclusion and socialization um, that allows people who are prone to addiction to feel part of a community, perhaps we can avoid them going down that path. And so why stigma matters? Because people feel ashamed when they're stigmatized. They feel isolated. Ilana talks to us and she says, you know, I never spoke to anyone about my substance use in high school. I was scared. I knew I was experimenting. I didn't know where it was gonna go. I kind of knew it wasn't healthy for me, but I didn't talk to anyone because I was afraid I'd be labeled as a bad kid. I was afraid that people would look at me and say, oh, you have a moral failing, you have a character flaw. And Yolanda was a pleaser. She wanted, she wanted to be a good kid. And so the environment that, despite it being, you know, our, our community in so many ways creates wonderful environments for our children. In this situation, the environment was not conducive for her being able to seek out her help because of the stigma associated with substance misuse and addiction. It also causes families to keep the information as a shameful secret. Um, and, and as a result, the families don't reach out for help. 
And we've seen that over and over and over again in our work, um, where families just, they're, they're so afraid of, of being labeled as a family that has someone in it that is suffering with substance misuse or addiction. Um, they just don't, they don't get the help they need. Um, so that's why stigma matters. Now, why do we have it in our community? And, and I would say it's not just disproportionate in the Jewish community, it's really many faith-based communities that suffer from disproportionate stigma associated with uh, substance misuse and addiction. And I think the reason for that is that we look at ourselves and we like to hold ourselves up to a higher standard as a community. Um, and very often in doing that, we engage in what can refer to as othering. Oh, these are things that happen in other communities. And so at its core, what it really is, is ignorance. Because what we feel is, you know, these things that are happening, addiction and substance abuse, these, these must be bad things. And therefore they can't happen in our community because we hold ourselves up to a higher standard um, because we expect more of ourselves. Um, but at the end of the day, what we don't realize or what our community is first coming to grips with and starting to realize is it, it, it's not a moral failing, it's a disease and it's a disease that attacks our community in the same way as it attacks others. So at its core, sadly, um, the, the stigma that we suffer from is kind of similar to the stigma that cancer had in our community 20, 30 years ago, that other mental health issues have had in our community over the years. It's really born out of ignorance. So what can we do about it? Um, the first thing are nights like tonight, um, educating ourselves and making sure that we as a community understand um, what the disease of addiction truly is. Um, and more importantly than that, really just being sensitive to the fact that this is out there. Almost certainly people you know are suffering with from addiction. Um, you just might not know who they are. And so keeping that in your mind and, and making sure that we have sensitivity towards the issue, trying to embrace people who might be suffering, um, who we might know are suffering, creating an environment where people feel comfortable to reach out for help about anything and, and, and not, not whispering the names of any illnesses. Um, but really creating an open environment where families and sufferers can, can reach out for help. Um, if we can do that uh, in our community, and, and we have done that through amazing organizations, think about what High Lifeline has done around um, childhood cancer. Um, if we can do that uh, in our community, we can improve outcomes for people who are suffering. So, um... In 2018, when Ilana was about a year into recovery and, and fairly stable and doing well down in Florida, um, we started talking about this. Really, it came out of a conversation coming home from Shul one day. My then 20-year-old son um, was overhearing our conversation. Somebody in Shul had asked, oh, where's Ilana? What's she up to? Is she married? What's going on with her? And, you know, I'm sure everybody's had those embarrassing moments where your kid might not be doing exactly what the, you know, quote unquote plan is. Um, and we came up with some vague answer was in front of other people and not that we were going to go blurt it out, you know, she's in rehab or she's, you know, in sober living. Um, we said, you know, she's finding herself, you know, she took a break from college, she's two years in, you know, maybe she'll go back to school, whatever. We just kind of got through that conversation. And on the way home, I was sort of lamenting to ETL, you know, why can't we just, like, what, I hate that trying to find something to, to say, it sounds so awkward, it sounds so fake. And my 20-year-old son turned to me and said, I just tell people she's in rehab when they ask. And I said, okay, that's great, but she's not currently in rehab, she's in sober living. And he goes, oh, 
okay, well then I'll just tell people she was in rehab. <laughs> um, and that kind of, you know, both our rabbis comment right around the same time of it definitely affecting other people in our community that he knew of. And my son's kind of offhand comment about why can't you just be open about this and why can't we just say it? Um, you know, that brought us to what where we are today. We decided to have an awareness event. Um, we live in Teaneck, New Jersey. We put together an event in April, 2018. We brought together speakers, including my husband. I didn't speak. I didn't think I was gonna be capable of speaking that night. Um, as it was, he couldn't maintain eye contact with me because I was like crying in the front row. Um, and we had different people speak and, and you know, Etel stood up and told our story. The person next to me said, turn around. I said, why? And he said, there are a lot of people behind us. And I said, and this was in a high school, you know, auditorium. I think we set up, we thought maybe we'd get a hundred people. I think we set up for 400, something like that. You know, we put out all the chairs that they had. Um, I didn't turn around because I was embarrassed. I was in the first row and I didn't want to turn around. It turned out there were 700 people there that night. There were people who couldn't get into the building. They said it's the first time there was traffic getting to the school. Um, there were people in the hallways. There were people down the stairwells. They were bringing in chairs from everybody. It was standing room only. The week prior to that, we, when we went to the local Jewish newspaper here to talk about the event, um, two Jewish newspapers and one secular newspaper carried it and they all made it their front page story. And from that moment on, it wasn't even the event. From the week before, everywhere I went, soccer games for my daughter, you know, amazing savings, the supermarket, parking lots, you name it, wherever I went, people, restaurant, there was a restaurant, um, people came up and said, you know, me too, me too, me too. Somebody chased us down the street when Shabbos, we were taking a walk and said, you know, my brother is in recovery from addiction. Another person told me their brother overdosed. Um, so, you know, again, it was that reinforcement that we knew it existed. And all of a sudden we opened this Pandora's box. The night of the event started with a woman coming up to us in tears, literally crying hysterically, couldn't get a word out edgewise. I didn't even know who she was. The person who was introducing her, you know, said, this is so-and-so. And then we kind of waited awkwardly. Um, and she said, I'm so sorry. My son died four years ago of an overdose. And I can't thank you enough for doing this. You have no idea what this means to me. And, and that's how our evening started. Our evening ended with somebody coming up to, to us who we've known for a very long time they didn't know anything about Ilana and we in turn didn't know anything about their son. And we ended up telling each other, well, we told our story to 700 people, but they ended up telling the story to us that evening. And again, we knew this person for over a decade and we had no clue, no clue whatsoever. So we knew this was not a one and done. We weren't gonna just have this event and then, you know, that's it, drop it. We, we um, decided, you know, we're gonna go forward. We're gonna form an organization. We've, we've uh, filed, you know, 501c3, made this charitable organization. And one of the things we do is we go into schools, we talk to students and we talk to parents and we educate them about addiction. For students, we talk about substances, what they do to the brain and body. For parents, we talk about communication, which I'm gonna get into right now. And I'm gonna give you a little taste of what we do in our parent presentations, but also because it's it's informative for you. Just while Leanne's pulling up the screen, um, you know, the organization really has three pillars to it. Um, one is the, the schoolwork that Leanne talked about um, two, we formed a support group for Love COVID Time. Um, and, you know, by our calculation, um, we've educated thousands of people over the last couple of years around substance misuse and addiction in the Jewish community. But I'll let Leanne take you through a little bit more about addiction and what it's all about. Okay. So in presentations to students and as well as to parents, um, the, 
the students have a presenter who actually is in recovery themselves. Ilana happens to work with us. She happens to be a phenomenal presenter. She's very real, very relatable. And she goes into schools and she talks about this cycle. So she, while she's presenting the scientific factual information about the, the disease of addiction, she will infuse it with her own personal journey. In this particular case, she will talk about, you know, the first time I took something um, and I felt good. It, you know, it gave me this, this good effect. And then, you know, I took it again. And now you start building up tolerance where your body gets used to it, your brain gets used to it. Um, and then it goes through the cycle to replace natural dopamine where only the substance really can affect you in that positive way. And your natural dopamine has been replaced. When she talks about it, she talks about it, um, that it was a battle between her brain and her heart at that point. And we're talking in the college years where she was really you know, in full on addiction after that long period of time. And she says, my heart, I wanted to stop. I tried, I kept on trying and my brain just couldn't. My brain was so addicted to the stuff, substance and so reliant on, on it at that point to feel normal. That's how addiction happens. There are different types of addiction. Um, nicotine happens to be one of the most highly addictive substances out there. Vapes, just so parents know, 99% of the vapes out there have nicotine in them. There's no such thing as water vapor. There's no such thing as just flavoring. Um, the jewel pod, when you, when you inhale or vape one jewel pod, that's worth 20 cigarettes worth of nicotine. So a pack of cigarettes. What type of substances will your child come across? So we just talked about e-cigarettes. Um, Juul and other e-cigarettes are really marketed to our youth. These are companies that are targeting our youth. They wanna make them consumers for life. Um, the weed pen is now the latest and greatest drug trend. It, it looks like what you see on screen. It looks like a device that could be you know, anything. I mean, really it could be a pen. Um, and it's used, you put liquid marijuana in it and, and you inhale the vapor from the marijuana. Um, it is like anything else going into your lungs that's foreign. It has its own dangers besides the dangers of marijuana itself. Um, the problem with marijuana is that our kids perceive that it's totally harmless, that it's been legalized in some states. In New Jersey, it's just been legalized, unfortunately. And what they don't realize is that it has a very highly not addictive quality in itself, but it's that starting point. It's that point where somebody feels something. And then if they have an addictive personality, if, they're, if they have a propensity to become chemically addicted, they're going to move on to something else. And I would say most addicts do talk about the fact that they started out with alcohol, marijuana, or both. Um, alcohol is obviously something that we have in our lives, in our, in our rituals, in our, you know, chagim and all that. So it's something that, you know, we have to just think about how we model that to our children. And prescription medications, we talk about this in schools. We're very careful because a lot of kids are on medications for ADHD. Um, you might get your wisdom teeth out and go on a, a painkiller. Um, we talk about, you know, just being an advocate for yourself and understanding why you might be on something and why following a doctor's orders is fine, but don't share your medication with other people. Don't give it to friends or anybody else, even if they say they're on that medication. So this is just a couple of facts about, you know, THC, which is the hallucinogenic in, in marijuana is much more powerful these days than it was 25 years ago. And then it comes in even more intense forms, which I'm gonna to get to in a second. Um, E-cigarettes, again, it's not harmless water vapor. It has nickel, tin, lead, stuff from car exhaust, carcinogens, ultrafine particles, formaldehyde, disgusting stuff that we tell the kids and we show them, you know, a very educational video about what actually is in a vape. Um, stimulants are something that are misused by teenagers, unfortunately. And like I said, sharing 
Adderall, Ritalin, stimulants like that. That's a very common practice, unfortunately. and something we just have to, as parents, watch out for and talk to our kids, you know, make sure they're not sharing their medication. Um, and binge drinking, alcohol. Alcohol is a huge problem amongst our community in, in particular. Um, not just binge drinking, but alcohol in general is something that is used a lot. It's something that teens use, but um, you know, we struggle with it just like any other community. The other thing we really talk about is early onset of use and why postponing use, meaning they'll say, oh, my parents drink, or oh, you know, my brother smokes marijuana, or oh, I see people vaping all the time. What's the big deal? Um, we talk about the long-term risks. You know, if you, if you repeatedly use marijuana, it can lead to addiction. It also has, um, it, can, it can lead to psychosis, memory problems. These are cognitive um, impairment that is not reversible. We talk about drinking before the age of 15, raising the level of your risk of alcohol dependence or alcoholism. Um, teens who vape are four times more likely to move on to traditional cigarettes. And you know, people who start marijuana before they're 18, they're more likely to become addicted to something else. So you know, we, we talk about the short-term effects of substances, but we also talk about the long-term effects and having kids not um, go into substances and, and delay their first, hopefully their first use of it once they're exposed to it. These are just two trends with marijuana. Um, dabbing, just something parents should know. It looks like honey or butter or wax. It's a THC concentrate. Um, normal levels of THC, I think are about 20 or 30%. Um, this, is, this can go up to 80% THC content. So it's a very, very intense amount of THC, which, which can be dangerous. Um, you can't really overdose and die on marijuana, but you can overdose in the sense that you can have a psychotic episode um, or you can be extremely impaired where unfortunately if our kids have licenses, they might get behind the wheel. Um, edibles also have its own danger because you're ingesting the THC instead of smoking it or inhaling it um, or injecting it in some cases, you can end up eating a lot more than you think because you're not feeling the effects of it. So you think, oh, I'm not high, I'm not getting high. I must, you know, then I'll have another brownie. I'll have another cookie, I'll have another gummy. Um, and it does come in those forms, by the way, also lollipops, um, other things that look harmless that are not harmless. Just very quickly, I don't wanna bore you with a lot of facts, but um, you know, these are studies done of eighth, 10th and 12th graders. Um, scarily, there are a lot of eighth graders out there that, that vape. Um, there are a lot of children, and I'm gonna call them children even if they're 12th graders, that are vaping marijuana and that is on the rise. It is a practice that has become much more popular over the last year or so. Um, and again, it has the inherent dangers that I talked about before. So until COVID hit, um, binge drinking and past year alcohol use amongst eighth, 10th and 12th graders was actually on a decline. It actually had started out higher um, from 2010, 2015. And unfortunately, it's just kind of tapered off in 2020, and probably it's increasing in 2021, just based on the trends that we're seeing. Okay, so this is, the, this is you know, not a comprehensive list. It's a good list, but it's not a totally comprehensive list of what you should be looking for. But you have to use your intuition as a parent. You really have to go with your gut. If your child has suddenly withdrawn, they're usually outgoing, or if they have mood swings, or if they are lying in bed or they're bubbly and they're usually kind of quiet, if they change their friends, if they're not taking care of their hygiene anymore, 
um, if they have physical changes, they've lost weight, nosebleeds, things like that, loss of interest in work, they sneak around, they seem to be hiding things, their eyes look red. Um, you know, there are lots and lots of behavioral and personality changes that could be something else. It could be, you know, unfortunately it could be a mental health issue or it could be just, you know, typical teenage behavior. This is not to alarm people. It's just something to keep in mind that if you see some of this, and I'm not saying every single one, you're not going to check every box, but if you see some of this and your gut kind of questions, wait a second, what's going on here? It might be worth thinking that maybe your child is, is dabbling in substances. Okay. In terms of contributing factors, and I'm not a clinician, I'm a lawyer. So or I was a lawyer until I started doing CCSA full-time, but <laughs> Um, you know, the, the preponderance of evidence talks about peer pressure, um, you know, wanting to fit in. I would think that was one of Ilana's reasons for, for trying substances um, was not so much peer pressure. She wasn't pressured by peers, but she was anxious about fitting in. She felt like she wasn't going to fit in in high school. She felt like she wasn't pretty enough. She wasn't this, she wasn't that. So she was very, had very, very little self-confidence going into high school that made her very anxious. Um, and of course, she picked a very unhealthy coping mechanism to try to relieve that anxiety, um, which is why we jumped on that right away. Um, trauma, you know, it could be um, real trauma, like, you know, sexual abuse or some kind of violence or a divorce can be traumatic for a child. Um, you know, there are lots of ways that trauma can be defined and it's sort of a spectrum of things. Um, mental health issues, if you have depression, anxiety, um, low self-esteem, you're more, you have more of a likelihood that you're going to turn to substances as self-medication. And then prescription drugs, which again, we talked about before, you know, you fall off your bike, you hurt your knee, you go to the doctor. Opioids are not as common a problem as they used to be because of the heroin epidemic um, and, and doctors really being scrutinized about how much they prescribed and who they prescribed to. But it, it is something just to be aware of as a parent. So what can you do? You know, despite what we think, we are still um, an influence on our kids. And, and even if they're moving into high school and they're naturally separating from us or hanging out with their friends more, they seem to not care what we think. Um, and I have five, we have five kids, uh, we have five kids and they're all very different from each other. And some of them share stuff with us and some of them don't. And some of them were very difficult teenagers and some of them weren't. Um, but all of them rely on us. And you know the studies all show that um, a good, healthy, nurturing relationship between parent and child leads to better decisions about using substances. And especially if you are there kind of involved in their life, not in a creepy, you know, spying on them way, but interested. You know, you wanna know who their friends are, wanna know who they're hanging out with. Um, again, you might be hit, you know, you might be hitting a brick wall um, I know with at least one of my children, that is something that I, if I ask what's going on, I don't really get much of an answer, um, but you're showing that you care. So, you know, choose a good time to talk, keep an open mind, ask open-ended questions, not, you know, yes or no, but like things that they can fill in and talk about. Um, try to sit back and listen without judgment, let them talk as much as possible. You can talk about how you feel. You can say, I really am nervous about you using substances. I really don't like the idea of you drinking alcohol. You're underage, there are dangers to it. Um, you have to offer empathy and support. And the most important thing is staying calm. And this is a mnemonic that we really like to use. Um, if you are too upset, 
leave the situation, come back to it another time. This is not a one-time conversation. This is really an organic ongoing process where you're, you're getting involved in your child's life. Um, and for those of you, I don't know what ages we're dealing with here, but for those of you who have young children, it's never too young to start talking to them because you wanna actually catch them before they're exposed, hopefully, to, to substances. But um, even if they've already faced ex, you know, being exposed to it, you want to get involved and you want to be the trusted source of information. So instead of, you know, the jewel company um, being a reliable source of information, which is really owned a lot in part by Philip Morris, who used to have tobacco as their main product and now has, has jewel, um, you know, you don't want your child misled. You don't want them to get misinformation about marijuana, especially that it's, you know, it's it, this perception that it's harmless is inaccurate. You want to be able to tell them, you know, and if you don't know the answer to a question, just say, I don't know, and I'll get back to you. Um, but you definitely want to be equipped with the facts. And that's why we're talking a lot about facts tonight. Um, so with that, I am going to stop my screen share and turn it back to you, Teal. So I, I just a, a couple of, of comments I want to make, I, and I do want to make sure we leave time for questions and, and I'll, I'll make a plug for asking questions so you can think of them now. Um, please do ask and, and nothing is off limits. Please don't be afraid of, of, of crossing any boundaries. We are an open book. And, and again, we've made this decision to be very open about our family's journey in the hopes that we can help others. So, um, you know, I really do encourage people to ask questions when it's time to do so. Um, but a, a couple of, of just comments, um, by the way, that was just taught to you by the woman who was afraid she couldn't speak two years ago publicly. So she's come a long way. Um, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I just want to reiterate one point I made earlier about um, addiction not discriminating on the basis of, of any factors. Um, over the last couple of years, we have gotten outreach from every, and I mean every, segment of the Jewish community, from, you know, intermarried secular Jews to Hasidim and everything in between. Um, and shockingly, this might be one of the few things that all the communities have in common, and that is that addiction impacts them. It's not a lot we have in common. That's one thing we do have in common. Um, different communities are more or less open about things, um, but make no mistake, I can tell you from personal firsthand experience in talking to people in these communities, every community, every school, no matter where on the spectrum it is, um, has an issue. Um, and frankly, anyone who tells you they don't is lying. It's just a fact. So I want to make that point um, because I think it's really important to, to, to highlight that point. Um, and, and, you know, that, that kind of leads me into just a little bit more about what we've been doing about CCSA and, and why we're in existence and why we do these types of presentations. Um, you, you know, we... Our, our, our perspective on what we do here um, is that we never want another family uh, to suffer the way that we suffered uh, in, in isolation. Um, and so our goal, our mission is to eliminate stigma. Um, we do that, again, I mentioned it briefly before in three ways. We have a support group for loved ones. Um, to the extent that people know of anyone who would benefit from that support group, please reach out to us. One of the wonderful benefits of COVID is that we are on Zoom now. So uh, whereas we were, uh, we had a, a well-attended local support group, we now have an even better attended virtual support group. And frankly, even post-COVID, we're going to keep it going virtually because we have people from all over the country joining us now. 
Um, so that's number one. Number two, the presentations in the schools that Leanne spoke so much about. We've been in um, over 20 schools, 25. so 25, um, I'm losing track, over 25 <laughs> schools. Um, and really our goal is to get into every yeshiva, middle school and high school uh, in the country. Um, there's no reason North America, why, why leave Canada out? Um, and and we, I, may, I say middle school because we do see these issues beginning um, in, as early as sixth, seventh grade. That is when, you know, talking to them at that age is, is, is already late. And we, we'd like, we'd love to see parents having those first discussions with kids even earlier. And then again, these educational um, programs that we run, um, just referencing one we ran a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday morning was around alcohol and Jewish religion. Obviously, it was we actually did on Rosh Chodesh. The, the, I guess it was the Sunday before Rosh Chodesh Adar, um, with Purim coming up, talking about you know ritual and some of the conflict between you know perhaps ritual and, and how to be sensitive to alcoholism. So um, that's who we are. That's what we do. Um, just to, to before we turn it over for questions. Um, Leanne mentioned it, but I just want to mention it again. Um, it is a pleasure to be having these conversations with Ilana doing well. She is three years. She just celebrated her third soberversary, as she calls it, um, uh, just uh, this week, um, which is very exciting, and we couldn't be more proud of her. I can't begin to tell you the struggle that she goes through every day, because I don't understand it, to be honest, because I'm not an addict. I'm not an alcoholic. Um, but she, she has to make a decision every day when she wakes up not to use drugs and not to drink. And, and the strength of character that she shows in her recovery is, is awe-inspiring. And she finished college and she's actually in graduate school <laughs> yes. now. So, and a certified peer counselor in yeah. recovery. So she's Thank come God. a long we, way. We, we, are, we are truly thank, thankful to Hashem and, and thankful, you know, that, that we can have this discussion against what so far is a good outcome. With that, um, Shira, we'd be happy to answer any and all questions um, that anyone has or address anything else that people want us to address. Okay, great, wow. Thank you so much for being willing to share your story. I've, I've heard you tell it over a number of times now and I actually, I, I mentioned, I read it in Mishpacha a couple of weeks ago um, and I still, I get emotional and I'm blown away every single time um, that I hear it and, and read it again and I really, I, really, I want to thank you on behalf of all three of our organizations for, and the whole community for sharing and giving up yourselves in this way to the Chicago community. Um, we have a couple of questions here that are coming in. The first one starts with, you are amazing, just so you know. Um, thank you. Attendees. Um, okay, this is a tough one. How do you talk to kids if there's a spouse who has an addiction and you don't want the kids to think it's okay. Um, no, yeah, that a, is a tough it's, one. It's a, it's a heart wrenching. Sorry, I picked the hardest one first. No, that's that's, okay. that, that's, that's fine. Okay. Um, look, uh, the approach that we take uh, across all age groups is to be open and honest and real. Um, and so, um, you know, there's there's a, a young man we interacted with whose whose mother um, suffered from from addiction. And um, it was very important to make sure that, that he and his siblings understood that what, what mommy is dealing with is a disease. She doesn't want to be like this, um, but she's suffering from a disease and we have to be compassionate. Um, it doesn't mean we're condoning the behavior. It doesn't mean that, that she doesn't have to do everything she can to get better. And we have to be there to try and help her in whatever way we can, um, but that she's suffering from a disease. And, and the approach we always take is to be open, honest, and real. Um, with family members. 
Um, yeah, I'm just going to jump in. I actually, a couple of years ago, was asked to speak to the um, YU Rebitsons conference. And we, I was on a panel with David Pelkovitz and a couple other people. And, um, you know, the question was asked by the, by the Rebitsons, how do you treat people in the community? How should we treat people in the community as Rebitsons of, of communities with addiction? And I turned around, and I said, how do you treat a family who's dealing with cancer? Like, you know, and not in a uh, a, a, a degrading way, I sound like very patronizing there, not in a patronizing way, but um, I just kind of tried to give them parity. And I tried to give them, you know, there are some people who are very private about cancer and they don't want to talk about it and they don't want to be out there because that's just not who they are. They're private people. Doesn't mean they're ashamed. People might not want to talk about addiction either. Unfortunately, that usually comes with shame. Um, but just if you're going to do carpools, meals, if you're going to help out, if you're just going to be there as a shoulder to cry on or, you know, offer support, it's, it's kind of the same way that you're, if you can reframe it in your mind that this is a disease like any other disease and how would you treat it with your children, you know, again, you don't, you're not looking to throw your spouse under the bus and I get that, but, you know, if you look at it as something that they're suffering from and it's not a choice, that it's an illness that maybe they're not ready to get help and maybe they don't want help right now or they don't even recognize it's an issue. But if you can reframe it, I think that's one step towards being able to communicate it in a, in a way that comes from your heart. Okay, <clears throat> thank you. Um, we have more questions coming in. <clears throat> At what age, as in how young, would you start talking to your children about substances and what would you say? to that age group? So national statistics um, talk about children as young as 12 or 13 already abusing substances, which means they started using them even earlier. Um, I know for a fact in, in some very yeshivish communities, kids in sixth, seventh and eighth grade are, are vaping. Um, so that's already an exposure to nicotine. Um, the, the people that we have speaking on our, on our behalf in the student programs, they're all in recovery. They're all several years in recovery. When they tell their story, their stories very often start, one starts 11 years old, very from family, um, you know, at the kiddish table. Um, another starts with the first bar mitzvah they went to, and there was alcohol at the bar mitzvah, and they were able to sneak some. Um, you know, Ilana's story also started 13, 14 years old, where, you know, she knew there was alcohol in the house and it seemed the, the answer to her problems for, you know, her anxiety over high school. Um, and those stories go on and on and on of that first use being much younger than we parents would like to think happens in our, in our own families and, you know, to our kids. Um, I don't think it's ever too early. I, I'm not a clinician. And again, I'm going to give that disclaimer because I don't know you know, what clinicians recommend in terms of do you start at four years old or do you start at seven years old? But I think that, you know, you're, you're trying to head it off at the past before they're, they're exposed. And if you know, chances are in middle school and maybe even earlier, they're going to be exposed to substances, then talking to them before that, even on simple terms, like you're not necessarily going into the, to the deep, dark, you know, world of substances, but just talking in very simple terms about there are things out there, um, don't put something in your body without knowing what it is. We talk a lot with the students, with the children. I don't want to call them students anymore. We talk a lot with our children about being informed and making informed decisions that, that you need to know what you're getting into. If you're going to make that choice to use something, and hopefully they won't, um, but to understand what they're doing. Yeah, and, and the only thing I'll add is more important than the conversation. The conversation is critical, but more important is how you behave. Um, our kids are very attuned to what we do. And so... Um, you know, 
be really cognizant if you're, if, you know, I, we have, Leanne and I both consume alcohol in moderation from time to time. We enjoy a nice glass of wine from time to time. Um, but we've learned that, you know, if you ooh and ah about a $200 bottle of whiskey, your kids are going to notice that. They're going to say, oh, you're, this must be something really good. You're, you're making a big deal about this. And so how you treat alcohol, um, you know, in your life in front of them and how you model that behavior is going to be almost as or more important, uh, I, I would argue, than, than those conversations because they're going to pick up on that. So don't lose sight of that piece of it as well. Thank you. Okay, um, another one. I think this one might be a little bit charged. Um, people can really debate this one, but okay. Um, what's your opinion? Is it better to get alcohol out of our shoals or keep it there to start a conversation about safety? Uh, oh, that is a controversial question. It's a great time. It's, it's, it, look, <laughs> it's a nice question. It's, no, it's a great, it's a great question. And, and I'm not sure there's a right answer. Um, you know, uh, we attended a local rabbi here, Rabbi Larry Rothwax, who's uh, one of one of my heroes, um, did a series of, of conversations about, you know, interesting topics, which he, he labeled, um, you know, let's talk in shul, which was kind of funny, um, you know, having these conversations. And one of them was about, was about um, alcohol and shuls and should shuls be dry. Um, and it's interesting because some of the arguments, and, and he didn't have an answer and there was really no conclusion, but you know, the arguments in favor of, of, of keeping alcohol out of shuls are why would we want to expose our, our children and, and there could be alcoholics in shul and are we really showing sen you know, lack of sensitivity? And somebody actually very appropriately said, well, why do we let kids into shul? What about people who suffer from infertility? Aren't we, aren't we triggering them by allowing kids to come into shul? And so to a certain extent, I think shul, you know, communities have to make their own decision. There are a few things that, in my opinion, must be in place in every shul. Number one, the alcohol needs to be controlled by adults um, who are responsible. Um, if there's alcohol sitting out that a kid can get to, that's not acceptable in any shul anyway, okay? So shuls that serve alcohol and don't very carefully um, dole it out, um, making sure that number one, no kids are getting to it, and number two, that nobody is, is being served um, too much alcohol, um, that's not acceptable anywhere. Um, and, and I'll go out on a limb and say that. Um, Beyond that, if you're going to responsibly serve alcohol, that's a decision a community needs to make in, based on its own sensitivities. I think that, that the conversation is important. I don't think you need to have alcohol in the shuls to have the conversation, um, but the conversation is more important than the decision that's made. I think that how we portray this, how we show this to our kids, um, you know, and, and it may depend. I mean, if the shul is the kind of shul where people are just can't help themselves, and if there's a bottle of alcohol there, people are just going to, you know, become inebriated and act like fools, then maybe that shul should stop. But I think it has to be a decision that's made by each individual community based on, on you know, the specific circumstances within that community. Okay, I have one more here. Let's do one more that just came in. Um, how do you know when it's too late and I need to go to rehab? We know our son is addicted and loves weed, but does want to stop. We know what's going on. We have sent him to therapy, but we feel it's not helping with the addiction to needing to smoke. What's the best solution to help him stop before getting to the stage that he needs rehab? So in our minds, rehab is really a last resort, not um, a first you know, answer. 
you definitely have to consult with professionals in addiction. Um, if you need help talking to somebody, we'll put you in touch with somebody. That's not, we've done that for many, many, many people um, to talk about what the options are. I did, I skipped this slide because it, it goes on my little, my uh, slideshow there, but there are, there are outpatient options. There are, you know, um, facilities that have programming. Yeah, I mean, if they're not really functioning um, and marijuana is the first and the last thing they do, you know, every day, they get up and they smoke and they go to, before they go to bed, they smoke and they're not really functioning. And especially if your son is saying he wants to stop, he's obviously acknowledging that he's being pulled in a direction by this chemical substance that he doesn't want to go anymore um, and he can't help it. So um, there's definitely help out there. I wouldn't jump to rehab. It may be the answer in the end, but I wouldn't jump to it as your first answer. Yeah, the, the, the spectrum of treatment options from just, you know, outpatient therapy all the way through, you know, in, intensive outpatient programs that are specifically designed for adolescents or young adults who are suffering from, from you know, cannabis use disorder, um, all the way up to, you know, in the worst cases, perhaps more, more um, severe treatment. But it, it look, I feel for, for the person asking the question, I feel for you because um, trying, you know, adolescents can smoke an awful lot of weed and still you know, believe they're functioning fine. Um, and the biggest concern or the biggest challenge is when they don't want the help. Um, because at that point, you almost have to, you know, you can try to, to, to talk to them, you can try and educate them, you can try and, and work with them. But until they're ready to, you know, invest in their own recovery, um, it's extraordinarily difficult when you're dealing with an adolescent or a young adult to get them to stop. Um, and, and our kids are incredibly resourceful. They will find ways, shutting off their supply just doesn't work. They find ways to get more. Um, so that's, that's, it's a real challenge. Um, you know, in the old days, they used to talk about people having to hit quote unquote rock bottom before they're ready to recover. I don't think that's, that's necessarily the case, but I understand why people would say that because very often the addict doesn't want to invest in their own recovery um, if they think they're functioning, even though to us, they may look like they're not. So um, yeah, there's, there's no, unfortunately, there's no great answer there. Thank you. Um, we're gonna do one more. It's almost nine o'clock. One more just came in. Um, okay, you mentioned how kids are vaping in sixth, seventh and eighth grade. How can we assure that our son is about to, that's about to go off to yeshiva and not pick up in the habit of smoking? I hear all the time that the smoking began in yeshiva high school. Um, before you answer that, I'm just going to quickly say, I know Leanne and I spoke about this, but, you know, for everyone living in Chicago, Madrigos also does have an education piece that most of the schools implement. And we do speak about substances both in the elementary school um, and in the high school. So find out if your school has a steps to healthy living program, whether in the Darachinu, the more yeshivish version, or the RPATH SEL, the more standard curriculum, but it make sure that your school has that program for your children and they will be hearing and they will be getting their prevention curriculum. But I wanna hear more from the NATL as well. Yeah, I, I, I mean, you, you, hit, you hit on the most important piece of this, which is educate them. We don't, when we talk to, to, to children, we don't talk down to them. We don't tell them drugs are bad um, because you know what? The first time they try a drug and it feels good, they're like, oh, those, those adults were just lying to me. Drugs are good. Um, and so we, we always, we, we never talk down to them. We always want to talk to them uh, in a relatable way. We want to educate them. We want to say, yeah, you're going to be faced with a choice. At some point, every one of our children, now it's interesting, if you have a teenage child, 
um, and you feel like playing this game, go home and ask them, say, you know, if you wanted to go buy marijuana, would you know where to buy it? The answer may be yes or no. If the answer is no, follow it up with, would you know who to ask about where to buy it? And the answer to that question is almost always yes. Okay, so our, our kids, you know, our, our kids are being exposed to these substances. And, and so what we like to do is, is educate kids and say, look, before the first time that you're gonna put this substance in your, in your body, um, you need to understand what the pros and cons are so you can make an educated decision. I mean, our, our children's brains don't fully develop until the age of 25. The frontal cortex doesn't fully develop. Their decision-making is, 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 you know, they, they're more impulsive than, than we are, um, uh, but they still have the ability um, to understand consequences somewhat, okay? And so, you know, our, my view is you need to educate them um, and make sure they understand what they might face and to be ready with some refusal skills. We talk a lot about that. Yeah, I was just gonna say that, um, you know, because they're making decisions on impulse, what we tell the kids is you're like a car that has an accelerator, but your brakes are not functional yet. Doesn't mean you can't make a decision. We don't talk down to them like ETL said. Doesn't mean you can't make a responsible decision, but in the moment, in a pressured moment when it's emotional, either a peer pressure situation or something else, you might make an impulsive situation, impulsive decision, and you might not be able to stop yourself. Um, a couple of things, role play with your kids, come up with strategies. What can they say? It sounds stupid to some people, but if you plan ahead, when they're in that situation, they might recall like, oh yeah, we talked about this. Like my mom will kill me. My mom drug tests me. You know, I have to babysit tonight, whatever it is to I'm, get out I'm of it. I'm on antibiotics. It might not mix well. I ought, I better not. You yeah. Know? And the other thing you can do is set up a code word to get out of a situation. So tell your kids if they need to get out of a situation to text you, you know, they, they don't want to go home with somebody who's been drinking or drugging. They themselves are at a party. They didn't realize substances were going to be there. They've been exposed to it. Um, and you know, set up some kind of system where you can extract them from a difficult situation. Okay, thank you so much. We have um, members from the audience who definitely want to be in touch with you. They want to know what age schools you speak to. They want to know how to reach you, bring to their school. So if you want to put your information in the chat box, sure, be great. Um, you know, I can tell the community that Leanne and Etel and I have been speaking, and we're planning on bringing them to some of our Chicago schools. Um, in the near future. I'm really excited about that. Um, and with that, we're going to wrap up. I really want to thank Leanne and ETL again very much for giving us this presentation. This was really fantastic. Um, and I want to thank everyone for joining us this evening. Um, we hope to see you this coming Motsi Shabbos for our, the last um, of the four of our series um, this Saturday night for keeping our community safe panels on Perm Party Peril, um, featuring Rabbi Ruben Gross, Tzvi Mantros, and DJ Shabbat. Thank you so much and have a good night. Thank you so much. Good night. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mental Health Matters. To learn more about Madrigos Midwest, visit us at madrigosmidwest.org. Please join us next time as we discuss another mental health matter.